throughout Scripture, we find a contrast repeated. And it's said different ways, but it's basically the same four words mark the contrast. And it starts out with, you were... And then the contrast is marked by but God or for God. And I think, and maybe five years from now, I'll think differently or believe differently, but right now I think this is the greatest contrast we find. It provides the most hope, the greatest hope for us. You were but God. And when you think back, for those of you who know Christ, and whether you have to think back 50 years or 60 years or six months, think back to who you were before you knew Christ. Before you knew the Creator. Before you knew his son, before you understood his sacrifice. How did you think? How did you respond to or react to hurt or pain or disappointment? How did you live? How did you cope? Where did you turn to for comfort? Or rest? What were the things you considered normal? How did you treat people? How did you entertain yourself? These are the things that fall under you were. These are the things that mark the lost. These are the things that come naturally, easily. We don't have to be taught. It's just there. We just perfect them. These are the things that our society and our culture around us promote and say it's normal. Everyone's doing it. What's the problem? But Scripture tells us you were these things. And if that's all it was, if that's where it stopped, if it was just you are, I am, and then we muddle through to figure out how do I stop, there's no hope in that. The hope comes in the next two words, but God. In Colossians, 
chapter 2 is where we'll start this morning. Colossians 2, verse 13. Colossians is written to a group of churches that are fighting against, wrestling against false teachers and false teaching that are seeking to draw them away from the truth. And throughout the book, you, you find the words, you were, you were, you were, but God, after Jesus, for this. And in verse 13, Paul is restating this, and he says, and you who were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. And you who were dead. And there's two things here. Were meaning they are no longer dead. But the second one is, what are the dead able to do? Nothing. And that doesn't matter if you've been dead, well, if you've been dead, if someone's been dead 50 years or five seconds, dead is dead. The length of time doesn't matter. The dead are incapable of anything. And you who were dead, before Christ, what are we capable of? Nothing. That is why, as Paul draws his contrast, you were, we were these things because we were dead. We couldn't help it. We're accountable for it. But you who were dead, in your trespasses, in your sins, and again, I've said it many times, and I'll say it again and again, just I want to make sure that when I'm talking to somebody, you understand we aren't sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. We're born into it. We're born dead spiritually. So you who were dead in your trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him. When he made us alive, we experienced a number of things in that moment, some which we understood, some we don't, we come to understand later. You were made alive, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. We were dead. But God made us alive. And when he made us alive, we experienced forgiveness for the first time. Real forgiveness, true forgiveness, where all that junk that we had perfected and practiced was forgiven. We were made alive in our record of debt. You know, the, the bill or the loan papers... You know, every time we sin, 
It's as if we acquire the equivalent of 10 times the national debt to our record. Impossible to pay, impossible to deal with. When we sin, we double that every time. We can't pay it off, we can't do anything with it, we're dead. We're helpless, we're hopeless. And yet, when God made us alive, he canceled the debt. And how did he cancel it? He nailed it to the cross. He set it aside. When Jesus went to the cross, that debt was sent there with him. It was canceled. It was taken care of. And we think, how cool would it be? Yeah, if somebody comes up and says, I want to pay off your mortgage. Oh, that'd be pretty cool. Now multiply that times infinity. Jesus took our debt and it was nailed to the cross with him. And in doing so, we had the opportunity for God to make us alive. No longer dead in our debt of sin. But it didn't stop there. He also disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, public spectacle, by triumphing over them in Jesus. We were dead, but God, in his grace, made us alive. He canceled our debt of sin. He nailed it to the cross. And those that would stand there and accuse us, They've been put to open shame. It's no longer us. We don't bear the guilt. We don't bear the shame. Jesus did that. We were. But God. We were powerless to change. We were powerless to save ourselves. We were powerless to say no to sin. We were powerless to choose righteousness. In Romans chapter 5, if you turn there, and if you write in your Bibles, this is a good place to start circling or underlining. If you don't, it's a good place to start circling and underlining. In Romans chapter 5, verse 6 through 11, we read, For while we were still sinners, actually, I'm getting ahead of myself, while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us. In that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were sinners, enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. More than that, We also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. We were weak, 
We were sinners. We were enemies of God. I think sometimes we come to believe, oh, I'm not God's enemy, I'm just, I'm just going to hold him here for now. When we're dead in our sin, we are considered enemies of God. And in that state, Christ died for us. In that state, God showed us his great love for us through his son, Jesus Christ. In that state, God reconciled us to himself through his son. We were but God. How much do we have to do with this? What are we seeing here? What part do I play? I'm dead. I was dead. I played no part. It's the grace of God poured out so that we could be made alive, so that we could be forgiven, so that we could know him and serve him. In Titus chapter 2, Paul is writing to a young man, a leader. He's encouraging him to keep up the good work, to remain faithful to God, reminding him of the basic tenets. These are the things you hang on to. These are the things that are non-negotiable. In chapter 2, verse 11, as Paul has been going through this, we're doing all this. Why? For God, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope. What's our blessed hope? The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation. When we were still enemies, the grace of God appeared. It's appeared to all people, not just for those who really need it. It's not just for those who, well, you don't really need it. You're already pretty good. It's for all people. God has revealed his grace. In Romans chapter 1, he's revealed it through his creation. 
so that no one can say, I never knew. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation. And the same grace, and I would argue that, I'd say most of us here would say, yes, it's by the grace of God that I am saved. It's by the grace of God I am forgiven. It's by the grace of God that I am no longer who I was. But, we sometimes lose sight of the fact it's by the grace of God I continue. It's by the grace of God that I am sanctified. Both a process and a position. God sees us as fully righteous, as fully holy, as fully sanctified. But we know it's a process by which we go through day by day, sometimes moment by moment. The grace of God trains us. It teaches us to do what? To renounce ungodliness and worldly passions. It teaches us, it trains us to say no. To, I, there's some, maybe it's NIV, some other translations say it trains us to say no. When we were dead, we did things that everyone does. Uh, my family did. It's all I know. It's not wrong, is it? But God, when he made us alive, we began to realize this isn't right. And there are other things in which we know they're wrong and we do them anyway, we pursue it anyway, and yet as we get into God's word, we learn, and by his grace, we learn to say no. It trains us to say no. It teaches us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. And we look around and we say, oh, it's just so hard. Everyone's going this way and I'm supposed to walk against, it's like trying to get down this hallway after church. If you go out this door and try to move that way, that's the way it is in the culture when you try to live an upright and godly life. However, the grace of God teaches us to do so. The word of God trains us to do so. We're not just saved by God's overwhelming and amazing grace. We live and we grow by God's overwhelming and amazing grace. And as we learn to say no, we're waiting for Christ's return. He said he's coming back. And so we wait. Just as those before us have waited. And maybe we'll see it. And maybe it'll be the next generation or several more, I don't know. But we wait with that expectation. And we learn to wait by the grace of God. Waiting doesn't come naturally. I'm really good at making plans in my head 
and expecting my family to figure out what I've been thinking about for three or four days and then being really frustrated when they aren't on the same, even in the same book with me, let alone the same page. There might be one or two of you like that. And so I learned to wait. Better yet, I learned to communicate better so I don't have to wait when I don't want to. Or I wish I learned to communicate better, right? We wait. The grace of God gives us the ability to wait and endure as we wait for the blessed hope. And while we're waiting, as we're learning, as we're being trained to say no to ungodliness, as we're learning to wait, what else do we do? For the employers out there, you all love it when the employee is just standing around waiting to be told what to do. No, you want them to go do what they know to do, right? If I have to tell you everything to do, I'm not going to get anything done myself. I'll just go do it myself. We were dead, but God made us alive, and in making us alive, by his grace, he makes us a people who are zealous for good works. And throughout Scripture, you see it over and over and over again. It's what Jesus taught. It's not just about stopping things or not doing things or getting rid of things. When you stop one practice, you begin another. When you get rid of some evil or sin in your life, you replace it with righteousness. You just don't leave an empty space. You fill it with holy living with holiness, with holy pursuits. And in Ephesians chapter 2, there's a lot of chapter 2's this morning. In Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 1, And you were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Paul is writing to those who were. They had experienced the power and the grace of God. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that In the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. And now here's the verses that most of us know. If you've grown up in church, you know, if you go to Awana, one of the first things you learn. For by grace 
you have been saved through faith. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of work, so that no one may boast. And what we need to do is memorize verse 10. Those of us who were, were reminded about God's grace, but it's in verse 10 that we see the result of God's grace in our lives, the sustaining work of God's grace in our lives. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When did God create the good works he has for us? It was when we were. It was before we submitted and surrendered to his grace the good work was prepared for us I don't find the good work I don't create the good works I come alongside of God and his son to discover what he's already doing and prepared for me to do. I'm like the little kid who desperately wants to help dad. All right, carry my hammer over here while I carry 400 pounds of the stuff that we're actually gonna do to build something. Hand me a nail. Carry the broom over here so I can sweep. God has prepared the works, and God is doing the work, and we come alongside of to take part in what he has for us in that work. We were dead, but by his grace we were saved. I think we all get that. I hope we all get that. What we lose sight of is by his grace we continue with that. Having been made alive. We are God's workmanship, created for good works, prepared beforehand. We live by God's grace. It covers our sin and it covers our shortcomings before God. Grace allows us to bear one another's burdens. It frees us to love and serve others. Grace frees us from shame and allows us to move on from past sin. Grace frees us from trying to earn God's favor. I can no more earn God's favor on my own than I can pay off the national debt. We do not create the work that God has for us. We join with him to do it. It's a gift. We are declared righteous. It's a gift. 
We are fully forgiven, not mostly forgiven, not almost forgiven, fully forgiven. It's a gift. We're set free from shame. And you understand the difference between guilt and shame? Guilt is the acknowledgement that I've done something wrong and I've got to fix it, and shame is that trying to hide it so nobody can see what I did wrong and living with that. We're set free from shame. It's a gift. We're made complete. I don't add anything to salvation. It's a gift. God isn't looking. God isn't looking for what I can do. And God doesn't need what I can give. If he needs what I can give, then he's not really God. What God is looking for, he's looking for me to learn how to love him and to trust him and to rest in him alone. Rather than looking to my job or my family or my friends or my reputation or my whatever, I find my all in all in him by his grace, in his grace, through his grace. On July 1st, July 1st, it was a Sunday, and we were in a little, little village with 10 Dominican believers, and our friend Miguel and Kristen and, and their family and that's where they go to church a place where there had been no church six years ago and we walk into this fabulous place under a mango tree with chairs that made me nervous to sit on so I didn't and we worship with these folks And Miguel was telling me, you know, they've been going there for seven years. He said, these are a folk, these are people that, maybe not the first believers to come from this village, but for sure the first believers to stay there. And the first church, and the only church. And he says, and they beat themselves up day after day. They understand God's grace and their inability to do anything during salvation, but they just feel so badly that they can't live up to it. And he says, our constant reminder 
to them as you live and you exist by God's grace as well. You do his work by his grace. It's not about yourselves. You weren't saved because of what you did. You don't hold it or keep it because of what you do. We're no, we're no different. We haven't been saved by what we did. We don't maintain it by what we do. What we do is a reflection of what we possess. Our service is a reflection of what we've been given. Now, if this is foreign to you, I would ask that you don't buzz out the doors and hope to figure it out later. If you are really uncomfortable right now, I would hope that you wouldn't run out the doors and grab lunch and forget about it. But instead, you'd find someone in the row you're sitting with or someone else you know and trust and say, what? These are the questions I have. Can you show me from Scripture where I can find the answers? Because apart from the grace of God, we are capable of no good thing. Would you pray with me? We hope you've enjoyed today's message. If you would like to know more about Bethesda Church, you can check us out on the web by going to our website, which is BethesdaMB.org. That's Bethesda, M as in Mary, B as in boy, dot org. Or check us out on Facebook by searching for Bethesda Church of Huron. Have a blessed day.